We'll be going through Mark chapter 6 and Mark chapter uh, 7 uh, this morning. And uh, as you are turning there, let's uh, just continue to review where we've been. We're in a series that we've entitled Man at Work, a study through uh, the gospel of Mark. And we have seen uh, that title come true over these last couple of weeks. I want to thank uh, Joel Walsh, uh, who... Uh, uh, quite aptly uh, took care of uh, the preaching of God's Word uh, this last week. And the encouragement that I heard from many of you um, that uh, I can take more time off because of Joel. And I'm encouraged by that. And Amanda's all the more encouraged by that as well. And so I want to thank him uh, for that and continue to pray for him and encourage him as he finishes his studies at Moody Bible Institute and uh, as he uh, spends this next semester interning uh, with us here at the church. Uh, it's going to be a pleasure to get to know him more and uh, see how God is going to grow him uh, to be a wonderful man pursuing uh, the will of God in his life. Well, we've been in this series that uh, we, like I said, have entitled Man at Work, and Jesus has been at work. He has been uh, expending a great amount of time and energy, uh, focusing in on reaching and serving those who are in need. And due to this, we're going to learn today that Jesus finds difficulty uh, to not only uh, stay in one spot, but to get a reprieve from uh, the uh, push of the crowd and the needs of the people. And uh, what we've seen Jesus do over these last couple chapters in Mark is he has strategically used his landscape to an advantage. We know that Jesus has been around the Sea of Galilee, and we have seen over the last three, maybe even four weeks now, that Jesus has crossed back and forth over the Sea of Galilee. And one of the reasons why, I believe, was that Jesus was using that to his advantage. The crowd was growing more and more in number, and as a result of that, Jesus, from a human perspective, needed some space. He needed some time, and what we see over and over again is that right when the crowd gets to be almost too much from a human perspective, Jesus says, let's get in the boat and let's head to the other side. And so we've seen Jesus going back and forth, uh, using the topography of the landscape there in Israel uh, to his advantage. And we see him now coming back to the other side, uh, back to uh, the side where his hometown would be. And the reason why Jesus has done this is he's become a polarizing figure. He's become not only a polarizing figure, but a very popular one. The crowds now are in the thousands, and they're following Jesus wherever he will go. It's become so difficult for Jesus that twice the scriptures say that he can't find a place to have a meal. Uh, this is one individual who is constantly around the crowd. The crowd has many needs, and they're seeking out Jesus uh, to take care of those needs. But it's not just a crowd of people who love Jesus and who need Jesus to minister to them. But Jesus has also created a quite an uprising within the ranks of the religious leaders. Uh, the Pharisees, we're going to learn in our text today, have come on a second fact-finding mission to try to understand this Jesus, to try to be able to understand how he has the power that he does and how can he teach with such authority. And they've come. We know that Jesus' name and renown has been made known all the way to Herod's uh, listening ear. And Herod now is aware, and all of the leaders of Israel are aware of it. But one other thing that we see is Jesus is not only popular and polarizing, but he was puzzling. We've learned through our study of God's Word that even Jesus' closest friends, his disciples, and even his natural family have wondered about what he's doing. Why is he going so hard? What is the reason for this type of ministry? 
that they inevitably see leading to some really bad things. They don't understand it. And so here we've seen Jesus at work, doing the will of his Father in heaven. And we come to a point where we will see the response of that work. First, a critical response by the leaders of his day, and then an amazing response by a foreign woman as we get into chapter 7. So let's look at this man at work, our Messiah, our King, who is serving just as he serves us today. So let's stand as we look to the text this morning. Mark chapter 6, we'll start with verse 53 and then we'll go into chapter 7. Uh, and we'll look to verse 30. It says, When they had crossed over, they came to the land at Gennaraset and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came, in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they had come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as washing of cups and pots, copper vessels, and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked Jesus, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? As it is written, the people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commands of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and mother. And whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or mother, whatever you have gained for me is Corban, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father and mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And many such things you do. And he called the people again to him and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand there is nothing outside a person that is going to defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then you are also without understanding? Do you, do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled, thus declaring all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All of these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. It is from there that he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter 
had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast out the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to dogs. But she answered him, yes, Lord, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, for this statement, you may go your way. The demons have left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. Let's pray again. Father God, we again lift up your name. And now, Lord, as we open your word, I pray that you would speak through me in a powerful way. Lord, I pray that I would decrease so that you might increase this morning. So, Lord, challenge our hearts, transform our hearts. Allow us to make the needed decisions that we have to make in approaching this text so that we will never uh, leave this place the same way we entered in. Lord, we need you because we are a defiled people. We are a broken people. And Lord, as clean as we make ourselves out to be, we need you in this day, just as this woman did. So Lord, come to our aid, to our rescue, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. For those who keep an eye on some of the trends that are taking place within the church, an alarming trend seems to be taking place, uh, especially seen um, with regards to our young adults in, in the church, not only here at Village Bible, of course, but throughout the world, especially here in Western uh, part of uh, the known world, of course, here in America. And study after study has shown some stunning conclusions And the studies show that our children who have grown up in Christian homes, who have been a part of the church for the majority of their lives, who have professed to have Christ in their life, are walking away from the church and Christ at an amazing rate. David Kinnaman, in his book entitled You Lost Me, addresses this. David shares in his book some of the reasons for the mass exodus of the young church. That people, these teenagers and young adults, show themselves at a percent, listen to these numbers, that 60 to 70 percent of all young people who have grown up in the church sometime in their college years will walk away from the faith. I want you to think about that for a moment. I have three sons. If that study is true, two of my three boys who grow up in a Christian home inevitably will walk away from the faith. This is an alarming statistic. And David Kinnaman, who's a part of the Barna Group, did a study on why the children or these young adults were leaving. And a variety of reasons were given, of course, amongst any kind of study like this. But the overwhelming feeling that young people had was the following. They saw their church as a place of do's and don'ts. A place where vibrant and robust faith is pushed aside for conformity. Where looking like a Christian was more important than living like Christ. They said that the church had become a place where dogma was more important than having a discussion. Where politics became central instead of the passion for our fellow man. Church was a place that was more vindictive, they say, than vibrant. That places of worship focus more on rules than drawing people into a dynamic relationship with Jesus Christ. 
This one hurt really bad. The study said by over 80% of the kids that were interviewed that they saw their parents more as hypocrites than holy. Wow. As a result of this, many young people who still say, according to the study, that they long for Christian community and they identify themselves as wanting to be Christ followers, look at the church and say they don't want the church, even though they may want Christ. They say the church has become more like modern-day Pharisees than Jesus. And because of this, David shares in his book, many are taking this assessment and saying to the church, I have lost my religion. Is that good or bad? Now, you could come up with a lot of reasons on both sides of the argument on why this may be the case. And many studies have been done. But I have to be honest with you, there's a part of me that says yes. We are hypocrites. Yes, we have made life more about conformity than real change. And we need to be a part of transforming that within our church. And I look at Jesus' ministry, and I see that Jesus was about change and wasn't about simple conformity. And this is what our text reminds us of this morning. We find Jesus on the west side of the Sea of Galilee, near the cities of Capernaum, uh, in between Capernaum and Nazareth. And we are told that crowds are coming. But it's simply not those who are coming with needs. Notice what the text says in verse 1. It says, Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem. We are told that this is the second fact-finding mission from Jerusalem for an official delegation to come, look at Jesus' ministry, and to assess who this Jesus was. And they come from Jerusalem... And they hear Jesus is preaching, they see his healing, and what do they do? Their assessment is seen to be very biased. Right away we see that they're not here just to simply investigate what could be a valid ministry, but they are here to cast aspersions on Jesus and his disciples and their ministry. They had done this before. They did it with John the Baptist in John chapter 1, and they had done it with Jesus in Mark chapter 3. But notice what, what happens is, is that these, this, these uh, leaders and Pharisees come and they can't touch Jesus. They can't find anything in Jesus to get mad about. And so who do they go against? His disciples. And they say, if we can make his disciples look bad, then we can say, what kind of teacher is he if his disciples aren't following the rules? As a man who has a job in food service, I liken the Pharisees to my local health department. And right away you say, well, Tim, you don't like your health department? I have some of the best relationships within my time as a caterer with a couple of my health department inspectors. They're wonderful people. The Pharisees did a lot of good. I am glad for a local health department. I am glad that when I go to restaurants, I don't have to worry that anything and everything is happening in the back of the kitchen. And so when they come, I am happy that they're coming because they're doing a good service. But I can tell you something. There are times when I am out doing events where the health department goes far beyond what I would say is right and good. 
The health manual that we have is hundreds of pages long in the state of Illinois. And I can assure you, even in the most pristine of kitchens and establishments, no one would ever be able to meet all of the rules. And what I'm thankful for is when a health inspector comes seeking out the welfare of the people and making sure that what needs to be done to allow for safe and healthy food is accomplished. But what I don't like is when someone walks in to prove their point, to come in and try to show who's boss, I'm not a fan. One day I was catering at an event where there was a horrific rainstorm. I mean, it was raining cats and dogs. It was raining sideways. And the health inspector wanted to know how I was going to keep the rain off of the grilled meat. I said, who do I look like, God? She says, you're being insubordinate. I said, I don't know what you want me to do. I've got tents up, but I can't just close it in. If I close it in, I won't be able to breathe. My guys will die, and we got bigger issues. She marked me down because rain was going sideways. I said, okay, I guess that will work. She says, well, now you know who's in charge. That's when you can pray for your pastor. <laughs> the Pharisees, in and of themselves, in the first century, were not a bad group of men. Now, I know that we give them a bad rap many times, but what they were trying to do was trying to keep their religion, they were trying to keep the faith in a place that was kept reverent and holy. The problem was at some time, and we don't know exactly when, but at some point, being in charge was more important than being holy. And as a result of that, all kinds of rules and all kinds of traditions became a part of this life of the Pharisees. And we see that these guys are more wanting to be known as who's in charge in living out the rules. Because in verse 2 it tells us that they saw that some of the disciples had eaten with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. Where in Scripture does it articulate that? Nowhere. But it was a part of a set of rules that the Pharisees had come to place on them. And as a result of this, we see our first point this morning. We see a problem. And the problem is with man-made religion. Man-made religion. While the Pharisees could have played a unique and helpful part in religious life in the first century, the men that had come were not helpful at all. In fact, Jesus says later on in one of the Gospels that they had made life a burden for the people of God. And into this text, we need to understand who we're dealing with. Jesus is being confronted by religious and spiritual leaders of his day, men who had built their entire lives, their entire vocation on a superstructure of man-made laws and regulations. And as a result of this, this stood in contrast to the leaders and prophets of the law. But we need to understand some things. First of all, I want us to get a definition. What is this man-made religion? Write this down in your outlines. Man-made religion involves observing outwardly without, observe, or without obeying inwardly. Observing outwardly, the Pharisees were great at that, without obeying inwardly. This is who the Pharisees were. 
Since the beginning of time, this is what human beings have been. We're dirty on the inside. We lack obedience on the inside. But our desire is, is to look as good as we can on the outside. Notice for a moment, turn in your Bibles to the book of Isaiah. This wasn't just with the uh, Pharisees of Jesus' day, but this has been going on in the nation of Israel for some time. Isaiah chapter 1, verses 11 through 17. Isaiah 1, verses 11 through 17. Listen to the words of Isaiah that come from God himself. In Isaiah it says, in verse 11, What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations, I cannot endure inequality, iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They've become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. So he says, wash yourself. Make yourself clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless and plead the widow's cause. Jesus says, you've got this wrong. You're living the wrong way. In Matthew chapter 23, he says this. Write these passages down. Matthew 23, verses 1 through 7, he says the following. He says, And Jesus said to the crowd and his disciples, The scribes and Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So practice and observe whatever they tell you, but not what they do. For they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on people's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all of their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplace and being called rabbi by others. And then he goes on in verse 27 and 28 to say the same. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within them are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanliness. So you are also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Man-made religion strives to look good on the outside, but fails to obey on the inside. Now on the flip side, both God the Father in the Old Testament and Christ in the Gospels wants something more than just outward observance. He wants a relationship. Write this down. If God says that man-made religion involves observing outwardly without obeying inwardly, then relationship, as we see, relationship is where we find ourselves not just outwardly observing, but obeying inwardly. We need to make sure that we're aware of that. There's a difference. There's a contrast that takes place. Now, how do we see this in the life of the Pharisees? 
How do we see it within the life of ourselves? Because it's incredibly subtle. It involves a declaration. Write these down. The only way we're going to know where we are at if we are pursuing religion or a relationship is in how we address people of where we stand with God. Religion will tell us in our declaration, I am righteous, I am righteous, therefore I'm accepted. I'm righteous, therefore I'm accepted. Now, relationship says that I am accepted, therefore I am righteous. I am accepted, therefore I am righteous. Now, while it's easy to look at our Catholic friends and family members and say, you're missing it. You think that works is going to get you to heaven, that we can become righteous on our own. We can articulate over and over again what Luther articulated some 600 years ago, that we are saved by grace. It's not of ourselves, it's a gift of God, and he beats that drum because the Apostle Paul did it in the first century. We've got the justification thing down. We are saved by grace, but let me tell you something. When it comes to man-made religion, when it comes to the hypocrisy within the church, it isn't through our justifying that we have the problem. It is through our sanctification. It is after Christ, after we've met Christ, that the proverbial pharisaical eyes and hands become a part of our life. Let me explain. I don't have a problem judging those that are outside the family of God. It's not really hard to do. They are lost and in need of a Savior. But where my judgment comes in is my brothers and sisters. Because look at me. I'm a good guy. I'm a preacher. I'm an elder of a local church. I'm a small group leader. My wife and I give generously to the Lord. I use my gifts. I lead a good Christian home. We're not involved in a lot of garbage that I see in the world. Our marriage is strong. And it's easy for me to look at you, my brothers and sisters, and say, what's your problem? Why can't you get it together? And what I begin to see is the pharisaical robe gets placed upon me. And I begin to look at how great I am and how bad you are. Here's the problem. The Pharisees were pointing outwardly instead of pointing towards themselves. And there's a part of us, my brothers and sisters, that have a Pharisee in all of us. There's a part of us where we're doing well, where we've got it all put together, that we can look at our brothers and sisters and point at them and say that they're wrong. It's there that we start building a religion. But it involves not just a definition, but I have to bring forth a, a, uh, not only a declaration, but a disclaimer to you this morning. There's a disclaimer. Because we can be quick to judge those and say that religion is wrong. It only involves relationship. But I want you to understand, and please hear me, nowhere in the Bible, nowhere in the Bible does it say that religion is bad. Hear me out. Religion in and of itself is not bad. In fact, James reminds us in James 1.27 that the religion that God finds is pure and faultless, is looking after orphans and widows in their distress and not being corrupted by the present world. 
Nowhere does God say that religion is bad. In fact, we are a part of a religious movement based on religious ideals. And the Bible doesn't say that being a part of a religion is bad. It just needs to be focused in and pointed to Jesus Christ. It has to be founded on that. Not the whims and affections that man has, but pointed towards the affections towards God. All the activities that we're a part of, worshiping, hearing the word of God taught, communion and baptism, are all what inevitably we would say are a part of our religion. But more important than all of those things, in doing those things, are humble and contrite hearts that engage in those activities for Christ. See, we need to understand that it's not a wrong thing to regulate righteousness. It's not wrong to hold a brother or sister accountable for their sin. But Jesus reminds us to be very careful in how we do that. He says, judge not lest you be judged yourself. And what that means in the world tells us, well, that means we can't judge anybody. Baloney. What it means is, if you're going to judge someone, do it on the same measure that you yourself would want to be judged. And so parents, you want to judge your children? Let's be reminded of the silly things and the dumb things and the sinful things we did as teenagers. Let's not forget those things. And with that remembrance, with that, let us judge our children. It is right and good to do. That's one of the perks of being a parent. To look at them and say, you're wrong. But remember that our God in heaven has the right to do that as well. That our brothers and sisters in Christ, no matter how old we are, can point and say, you're missing the mark. How do we know if we're living out a religion instead of a relationship? It involves a diagnosis. It involves a diagnosis. Where do we see the Pharisees going wrong? I want you to write these things down this morning. The first thing that we see, the first symptom that comes, is that the Pharisees regulated righteousness. Notice what the text says in verse 3. They were concerned because these men were not washing their hands and holding to the traditions of men that they had come from the marketplace, verse 4, and they were about to eat and they hadn't washed. And that wasn't the only thing, but there were the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. We need to understand that what they were trying to do was regulate righteousness according to their standards, not God's standards. Let me tell you again, it is good and it is proper for the people of God to regulate amongst themselves through accountability and confession righteousness within the house of God. But always, 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 it must be on the basis of Scripture, not my own personal whims. Does that make sense? We have a job to do. And so the next time someone comes to you and says, Brother, I, I, I heard your conversation the other day, and it was filled with cursing and all kinds of malice and slander. Brother, that is not becoming of a believer. Your response can't be, well, aren't you a Pharisee? They are doing you a good. They are a grace in a time that you need it. But if they come with their rules and their expectations... And those can't be found in and of themselves in Scripture, then you may be dealing with a Pharisee. There's a difference. 
The last time the Pharisees go after the disciples, they do it again. And they go after them on a point of ritual, not a point of real spirituality. The issue of washing hands. Now, why would this be so important? It wasn't because, and I, I, I want to make this clear, it wasn't because of sanitary reasons. The Pharisees weren't playing the part of mom saying, wash your hands before you eat. This wasn't what was going on. It was this idea of being ceremonial, ceremonially clean so that you would be able to eat according to their rules. And so we see this issue coming in. Now notice in verses 3 through 5 that it wasn't just regulating righteousness according to man's laws, but write this down. It involved trusting tradition. Trusting tradition. In verses 3 through 5, we see twice that it says that they were observing the tradition of the elders. The tradition of the elders. There is no speaking of the commands of God. There is no speaking to the law of Moses. There is no speaking to the Old Testament text. What they were breaking was the tradition of the elders. And that's how they could have these rules and regulations of washing hands and washing cups and pots. But why would they do it? There's some history that is needed this morning. See, during the times of silence, where the prophets ceased to speak on behalf of God at the end of Malachi, to the opening of the gospel, those 400 years, there was a rise in rabbinical writing. Rabbis would write, and they would write with regards to the law and how the law was to be lived out. But what happened was, and which is seen and reflected in the Talmud and the Mishnah, these ancient writings, was that what was commented by, from the law became law itself. As these rabbis would write, they would say, well, the law of Moses says this, and it's important that you don't do that, and so just in case you think that you might fall to that particular thing, let's make a whole set of rules that builds a fence around that law of Moses. You see, Pharisees wanted the law not to be broken. And in doing so, they created fences that kept people from even getting to that so that they would fall to lesser offenses than the breaking of the law. And so what was once an important part of their life, the law of Moses, now the majority of scholars believe that uh, the rabbinical writings and rabbinical laws what was the standing piece of order and direction for the Jewish people. They weren't even following the Bible anymore. They weren't even following God's ways, but they were following the commands of men. And so what happened was, is the Pharisees ran into problems. Because what it meant was, is they no longer could worship God. Now they had to make sure they lived in conformity to man. And it involved playing the part. It involved playing the part. In verses 6 through 8, a symptom comes out in its activity that doesn't have a heart of holiness as its pursuit. The Pharisees were doing all the right things. They were saying the right things. They were wearing the right things. They were speaking and singing the right things. But it wasn't making an impact on who they were on the inside. And what a reminder for us this morning. We come here, and we're a part of worship, and we sing, and we listen to messages, and we fellowship, and it becomes a part of our tradition. And these are good traditions. But be careful 
brothers and sisters, when you're a part of this on an ongoing basis and week in and week out, you leave and you're no different than you were before you came in. Because you've been a part of singing, you've been a part of listening, but it hasn't changed who you are. But boy, aren't you glad that the people sitting next to you know how holy you are? Look how good you are in church. Look how well you sing those songs. Look how well you're able to teach the class that you teach, but on the inside you're rotten to the core. They were playing the part and not being changed. It went even farther. Notice this in verse 9 through 13. They were looking for loopholes. In verses 9 through 13, it says, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. And he gives them a point. I love Jesus. He doesn't just accuse them of something, but he accuses them with proof. And here's the proof, he says. He says, what you do is that the law of Moses said, honor your father and your mother. And whoever reviles father and mother must surely die. He quotes the scripture. He does it right. But notice what they had said. They said, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you have gained for, from me is Corban, that is, it's given to God, it's used for the ministry. It, it's even what uh, scholars say is that even you had the intent of using it at some point for the ministry of the synagogue or the temple that you no longer permitted you to have to do anything for your father and mother. Think about that. Here you are, you've raised your children, you've taken care of them in their time of need, and the scriptures say, and what you're holding out for in the first century times is that my kids are going to take care of me. They're going to help me in my later years. And your child comes in and says, you know, I know the law of Moses says that, but I'm dedicating all of my money, by the way, much of it probably was through inheritance. The inheritance you've given me, by the way, I'm going to give that to the Lord. And so what that means, I can't help you, mom and dad. I can't help you to, to do that. And so they were beginning to look for loopholes to be able to keep money for themselves to do what they wanted with the money. Why had the tradition of the elders become that? Because if a person was willing to give their money to the synagogue or to the temple, the Pharisees were in a good spot. And so they had made a loophole that you didn't have to provide for your family, which was the law of Moses, which was Scripture, that now it would help them in a positive way from a cash flow standpoint to be able to give that money to God and not care for your family. This is where Jesus says you major on the minors and you minor on the majors. You worry about weights and measurements, and you forget the weightier things of God. The final thing that we see that they're a part of is that they were keeping everything kosher. They were keeping everything kosher. The Pharisees were quite concerned about what entered a man. And so they would say that there were things that were unclean, and there were things that were clean. Now the scriptures do tell us that. The scriptures do articulate that, but what had been a couple sets of items with regards to food now became a whole list of things, when you could or when you couldn't eat them, because food was either unkosher or ceremonially impure. But here was the problem with that, thinking that the Pharisees had come up with. The idea was is that I was righteous, and the things outside of me were unrighteous. And Jesus establishes once and for all, your theology is wrong. 
Your theology is warped. It isn't the things on the outside, but it is us on the inside who are defiled. It isn't the things that you eat that defile you, which we see by Paul and and Peter later on in the New Testament, but it is what we make of those things that make it wrong. Now, Jesus doesn't speak to these, but I believe that these are true where we have defiled good and pure things. We defile words by making them become grotesque things that cut down. Words in and of themselves aren't good or bad. We make them bad. The gift of intimacy between a husband and wife, a gift that God has given. We as human beings have made a tawdry act, a cheap and dirty act. What God intended for it to be clean and good we in the world have made evil and impure. How about money? Money is not moral or immoral. It's it's money. And yet we take it, and that which has been used to further the kingdom of God, we make it our God. And in doing so, we cheapen it, we glorify it instead of our God in heaven. And this is what Jesus is talking about. There are 13 things he lists in verses 21 and 22. And he says, from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual morality, theft, murder, and all the like. And where do those things come from? He doesn't say from the food you eat or the things that are outside of the world. They come from the human heart. And what Jesus is establishing once and for all is that we are a defiled people. And so he's talking to these guys that look all clean and wonderful. And just as he said earlier, you're a bunch of dead man's bones in boxes with a beautiful tombstone. And who cares how pretty your outside looks when the inside is full of gangrene? God is, Jesus is is turning the tables on the Pharisees. He says, hey, it's you who are dirty. It's you who make other things dirty. So who cares if you wash your hands? That's not the issue. You're missing it. Let's clean up the hearts. And Jesus says that religion that elevates man and de-emphasizes the things of God will only produce one thing. Notice what verse 6 tells us. It produces hypocrisy. Jesus says to the Pharisees, you're a bunch of hypocrites. The Greek word there is, is very easy to translate. Hippocritos. Hippocritos, where we get hypocrites, spoke in the first century of an actor who was able to play his part on stage, but then when the play was over, he could go back to doing who he was and how he lived and live the life that he was before he got on stage. And what the Pharisees are doing is they're playing their part. They're hypocrites because they look real good when everybody's looking. But when nobody's looking, then they get off the stage and they are who they were before they got on stage. Two very different people. Let me tell you something. If there's a sin that befuddles me day in and day out, it is being a hypocrite. Because it is easy on Sunday to get up here. It is very easy to play the part. But what about when nobody's watching? What about when nobody is around? Oh, the temptation that comes. Because in the heart of who I am lies a hypocrite. 
because it's easy to preach things. It's easy to tell you how easy it is to live this Christian life. And I got to tell you, I struggle with it every day. Hypocrisy, legalism, religion. But aren't you glad that that's not where the scripture ends? Because Mark then moves to one final thing. And I won't take a lot of time here. But we see a pathway. We've got a problem. And we can't fix it on our own. The Pharisees, just like us, are in a load of trouble. And they may not even realize it. And sometimes we don't realize it. But a foreign woman reminds us that there's a pathway to mercy that is seen in a relationship with Jesus Christ. Mark places another great contrast before us. Here we've got these Jews who should have gotten it right, and they don't get it right. And it's a Gentile woman. In verses, uh, uh, let's see here, uh, verses uh, 24 through 30, that gets it right. And I want you to see something, because Jesus travels 30 to 35 miles to the northwest of where he is. He's trying to get away for just a time to catch his breath, to have some communion with his father, but it wasn't to be. It says in verse 25, he could not be hidden. And so as a result of that, this woman comes, and she's got a problem, and she needs God's mercy. And it says in verse 25, she falls to her feet. In verse 26, it says she begs him to help her. And here's the problem, and here's the great contrast. We have a woman, strike one. We have a woman who is a Gentile, strike two. We have a woman who's a Gentile, who now has a daughter with an unclean spirit, who's been engaged with that daughter, who has touched that daughter, who herself now is unclean. And as a result, they got strike one, strike two, strike three. This girl doesn't have a chance. And what does Jesus do? Jesus engages with her. And this reminds us that what relationship with Christ is, is it involves having a clean heart, not just clean hands. Did you hear what I said there? It involves having a clean heart. Clean hands aren't bad. It's good to have clean hands. But if your clean hands don't make it into a clean heart, then you've got a problem. Then that's where hypocrisy begins. But when we have a clean heart that in and of it then produces clean hands, then we've got a real and true relationship with the God in heaven. Because it is him who enables us to have a clean heart. It is him who enables us to have clean hands. This woman understood what mercy was all about. She had nothing. And she comes before Jesus, only seeking his mercy. Can I tell you something? Christianity is not Jesus 99% and you 1%. Jesus is, you give him 100% evil, vileness, and sin. And Jesus does the great exchange of bringing 100% of his holiness and purity and his mercy. And if we're putting our basis on our Christianity, on anything of ourselves, we nullify what Paul says, that it is a gift of God, not of ourselves, that anyone could boast. And this is what we see with this woman. She comes, and she comes knowing, I've got nothing to give just help me in my time of need. Notice the next thing that I want us to see as I close this out. 
I want us to see one other thing that relationship involves. It involves adopting God's kingdom agenda. And I want you to see this this morning. It's important because I see it in, very quickly, uh, four different ways. Number one, what adopting God's agenda looks like is serving the Savior, not your own selfish ambitions. What I mean by that is notice for a moment, and go back to chapter 6, verse 53 through 56. There is an unsung group of heroes in there. It says that when Jesus got out of the boat, people immediately recognized him. And notice what it says those people did. They ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came, in villages, cities, and countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they may touch even the fringe of his garment. Understand this. What being involved in a relationship is, is first of all experiencing God's mercy. And when we see Jesus taking those who haven't heard the message of the gospel, who are in need of healing, and going and getting them to Jesus. You see, part of the problem that we have in our churches today is that we have made church all about us and not about those who need Jesus. Now, please hear me. What I mean by that is that, yes, church is for the believer, and it's good for us to come around God's word and to teach the believers and edify the believers. But let us not forget the reason why we're edified. The reason why we're preached to is so that we can leave this place and preach to others. Amen? That's what it's all about. But so many of us take what we've heard and we do nothing with it. James says we are listeners. We hear the word, but we don't do what the word says. Jesus is saying, my agenda for you is to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ so you can spread the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ to others. And what that means is what Jesus did, reaching out to other races. Reaching out to other races. Jesus reaches out to a Syrophoenician woman. Jews would say of Gentiles, they are dogs. And Jesus says, I'm going to reach out to you. I'm going to spend time with you. And we too are called to serve other people. We are too called to serve those who are different than us. We too are called to go to far-flung places of the world to share the gospel with people, not because we're better than them, but because we too are like them, sinners in need of a Savior. Why do we devote 25% or thereabout of our giving to local and worldwide mission? is because Jesus is creating for himself a people of every tribe, tongue, and nation. And that's why we're passionate about missions. But it involves loving the lowly. Even though this woman was identified as a dog, Jesus speaks to her. And he says, hey, you can't give food that's supposed to be given to children to dogs. The disciples have been, yeah, Jesus, let her have it. Really give it to her. She's a, she's a Gentile. She's dirty. She's a foreigner from God. And, and they do wicked things. And what Jesus says, I think, is striking. It's hard to see in our English translations. Is what Jesus says is not a dog, some mangy mutt. But Jesus is speaking about the household pet. 
We had a Cocker Spaniel, Boomer, beautiful little Cocker Spaniel dog. Boomer got fat after Noah, Joshua, and Luke came into the world. Because what we learned at the table was Luke, Joshua, and Noah loved Boomer more than Daddy did, and they would sneak some of the crumbs, and Boomer loved it. And so when the boy sat down, not when Dad sat down, when the boy sat down, Boomer was under the table. And what Jesus is saying is, hey, the people of God, yes, are important. Jesus came and he preached the gospel to the Israelites first, yes, but it went farther than that. And that was the great mystery of the church, that it would not just involve a specific people, but it would go to all, including the Gentiles in their midst. And it reminds us of one final thing that the woman nails on, and that is that she was content with crumbs. You need to understand what she was saying is, Jesus if you'll only give me just a little portion, that's enough. If you just give me whatever is left over, I'll take. That's enough. You know, we as people are so demanding of our God. We're demanding, we say, God, you need to give me this, that, and the other thing and make sure it's got a nice cherry on top. And if not, I'm going to lament on how difficult my life has been. And this woman says, hey, just let some of your crumbs fall off the table and that will be good enough. When was the last time we as a people worshiped God for the crumbs that fell off of his table? You see, the problem is, and let me close with this, the problem is in our Christianity is that we would rather sit with princes at the table of the world than be sitting under the table of God receiving whatever crumbs come off his table. Jesus' crumbs are good enough. That crumb that came off of the table to the Syrophoenician woman would save her daughter from the bondage of a demon. When we go low, God's mercy and grace lift us up. So there's a contrast this morning as I close. What type of religion are you looking for? A religion that lifts you up or a religion that lifts up the relationship with the one and true God, Jesus Christ? Is it a religion that brings you low, that tells you that all you can depend on is the grace and mercy of God? Or is it one that tries to look good in the pew? God desires people to enter into a religion that changes lives. And that religion involves a relationship. Let us be a church that lives out this true religion because it's living out a relationship with Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father God, we've, we've done a lot today. And Lord, I pray that you would speak to us this morning. Lord, it's easy to look at our spouses and our friends and our children and say, boy, that's a message for them. They need to hear that. I hope so-and-so was listening. Lord, I pray that I was listening this morning, that I was understanding that I am looking for loopholes, that I like to regulate righteousness according to my measure of faith, that I like to uh, put up the traditions that I like above even the commands of God. Oh, Father, I pray that we would be changed this morning, that we would recognize the Pharisee in every one of us, and, Lord, that we would move away from that, and that we would see the faith of this woman who came and who just poured herself down. She went low and asked for the mercy of Jesus Christ. Lord, we should recognize once and for all that Mark continues to tell us that's when we go low that God raises us up. And Lord, I pray that each and every one of us today would be placed low. Not just in some self-humiliation, but in a humiliation that raises you up.
That's the religion that you find as good. It's a religion that takes on your burdens and goes and reaches the lost. That's what James says, looking after the orphan and widow, helping those in need. Lord, we want to be a church that isn't just religious, but that is bound in a relationship with you so that we can live like you and so that you can live through us. We need your strength to do it, so we ask your Spirit's help and guiding to that end. In Christ's name we pray. And all God's people said, amen.